evening as we continue our one word study is fellowship. Fellowship is one of those words that I expect pretty much all of us are at least tolerably familiar with, but we typically only use it in a couple of limited context. The first and the most common is for the meals that we eat together as a church, right? Those are fellowship meals. When we have that potluck together, that's fellowship. And when I was growing up, we didn't have a fancy family life center where I went to church. We had a fellowship hall. Why was it called the fellowship hall? Because that's where you ate the fellowship meals. Uh, That is the primary usage of that term. The second, more limited sense in which we're used to hearing that is when very occasionally we might talk about withdrawal of fellowship. And hearing that growing up or hearing that even now, that's one of those things that we might talk about every now and then conceptually, uh, but we don't ever actually do that. Uh, At least when I was growing up, we never did it to anyone who was from around here, if you know what I mean. The concept of fellowship in the New Testament is so much richer, so much more meaningful than those limited senses in which we normally use it. It might include a meal as an expression of fellowship, more on that in a little bit, but it is so much more significant than that. It's a one-word summary of what it means to live together in community as God's people. Just think about what that English word fellowship in itself means. Fellowship is the state or condition of being fellows. When we think about how that applies to each other and how that applies to our relationship with God, that is extremely impactful. The primary New Testament term that's translated fellowship in our English Bibles is the word koinonia. Koinonia and its cognates that you'll see used in other different parts of speech means generally to have in common. It's from the same root as the Greek word koine. If you've ever heard of koine Greek, that's New Testament Greek. What we're talking about there is the common Greek, the language that your average person spoke on the street in the first century as opposed to classical Greek. Koine Greek, common Greek, the same root, koinonia. In the Greek world, this was applied in all aspects of life, civic, religious, legal, social, uh, you name it, in which there was some common element that affected everyone who was participating or in which all members of a group shared together. Now, if you have an English Bible, a modern translation, you might see some other words that are occasionally used or even phrases that are used to to render koinonia in these modern translations. If you come across something like joint participation or sharing or mutuality or communion, that's another one, and there's probably some others that I'm forgetting. If you see terms like that in your modern English translation, you can almost bet that koinonia is behind that too. This word in Greek is all about community. 
And that makes it particularly important for understanding the nature of the church. And remember, if you have our one-word book and you're reading through that, the focus in this unit is all about the church. If we're going to understand the church, then it's essential that we understand this term. So we want to begin tonight by thinking about some of the doctrinal foundations of fellowship. And actually, every one of these we want to look at comes from that text in the first chapter of 1 John that Tristan read just a few moments ago. First of all, our fellowship as Christians is fellowship with the Father. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. John says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. First and foremost, Christian fellowship is fellowship with the Father. Our fellowship has a divine source in our relationship with God. And this is actually, to me, one of the facts that's most important about this word and and really one of the most precious things about this word, fellowship. The New Testament words, koinonia and its cognates, the New Testament words that are used to indicate fellowship with God aren't used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to talk about fellowship with God. In fact, there are no Old Testament words that talk about fellowship with God. The theological dictionary of the New Testament sums it up this way. The righteous in the Old Testament depend on God, and they trust him, but they do not regard themselves as his fellows. Now think about that. That means that fellowship with God is a concept, it's a doctrine that is peculiar to the New Testament. That is a blessing and a privilege that we enjoy, that our predecessors didn't enjoy. Israel didn't have that same fellowship with God that we can have. It just didn't exist in prior generations. And that's because, second big point, our fellowship with God is distinctively fellowship with Christ. John says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God wants a relationship with all of humanity. That's his purpose in terms of what he wills and desires for us going all the way back to the garden. But when we talk about our fellowship with God, we're not talking about a relationship here that's based on us being creatures and God being the creator. We're talking about the relationship that we come into with God by virtue of being in Christ. This isn't just a a universal brotherhood of all human beings. We call God Father because we call Christ our older brother. We've been adopted into this family of God. We're in Christ. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the basis of our fellowship with God, the basis of our fellowship with each other, our community, is the fact that we're in Christ. Thirdly, Christian fellowship 
is based on and it comes through the gospel message. That's how God's call to fellowship is made known. This is what John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship with God in Christ is based on this proclamation John talks about, this apostolic proclamation of what God has done in Christ. You go back and remember this is verse 3. Read the first couple of verses of this letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's what John's talking about and that's what he says, what we've seen, we heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. The eternal life was made manifest in Jesus. And John says that he and the other apostles, they saw it. They heard him speak. They actually reached out and touched him. Those are the things that he's proclaiming here, these great truths about Jesus. He's gone on to declare that. And the whole point is that a fellowship is established by those who proclaim this message about the eternal word and those who believe that message, a fellowship that has a divine basis and a divine origin. And that brings us to the fourth and final thing we want to note, these doctrinal foundations of fellowship. Fellowship is based on a common faith or a shared faith that we all have. That's the flip side of fellowship coming through the proclamation of the gospel, right? You have to receive that. You have to trust it. You have to believe it. That message has to be appropriated in faith so that John says it declared, he says they declare it so that you too may have fellowship. That's implicitly conditional, isn't it? You may have it if you believe it, if you trust it if you accept this proclamation that we're bringing. So we put all this together, all of these foundations of fellowship. Here's the point. John gives the purpose or the goal of preaching. And it's so those who hear the gospel can have fellowship, can have a relationship with God in Christ. You see, Christians aren't just a religious people in an abstract sense. We're not just people who go out and do good. We're not just people who are, are moral, people who practiced uh, certain virtues. We're people who are in a relationship with God, a relationship with the divine. That's what this is all about. And because of that, because of that relationship each of us has with God, we're in a relationship with each other. Our relationship with each other depends on that one we have first and foremost with God. Now, all of that might sound nice. It might sound pleasant. It might even sound meaningful. But sometimes we look at these doctrinal truths and we wonder, okay, what's, what's the point? What difference does that really make for us? Well, that fellowship that exists is expressed in some concrete ways. The New Testament talks about several of them, and I wanted to just consider a few of the most prominent ones. Uh, first of all, the material contribution for those who are in need is talked about as koinonia, fellowship, 
in the New Testament. In fact, it might surprise you to know that's the most frequent usage of this word group in the New Testament. Talking about fellowship, it's for contributing to meeting the physical needs of others. Uh, you go and you look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Paul's point here is God has given to us. And the church's response to God's grace, the free gift of what he's done in Christ, should be to give in return. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, he's talking here about the example of the churches in Macedonia. He says that they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That taking part, the way it's translated in the ESV, that's koinonia, the fellowship of the saints. Or again, another example in these two chapters, chapter 9, verse 13. He says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Contribution there, that's koinonia. The generosity of your fellowship, your sharing, your joint participation in this. You could go back to Romans where Paul is again talking about this same collection that he's taking up. And he calls this collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He actually uses the word koinonia to refer to the collection itself in Romans 15, 26. But he gives in the very next verse the, the foundation for that. Verse 27. For they were pleased to do it. He's talking about Macedonia and Achaia. That is those in Corinth. They've contributed now too. Macedonia and Achaia contributed to this collection, and he says that they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Koinonia, sharing in the physical and the spiritual blessings, and that expresses perfectly Paul's purpose in this collection. You remember what his purpose was? It wasn't only to relieve the poor Christians in Jerusalem, although that was a big part of it. But a large part of the goal was these Gentile churches contributing to the relief of these Jewish Christians so that it could make it clear to everyone, Jew and Gentile, these are one people. We're all God's people. We are in fellowship with each other. That giving concretely expressed that, and it actually enhanced that oneness. A second expression of fellowship we find in the New Testament is cooperation in spreading the gospel. Paul talks about that as a koinonia. Now, sometimes he talks about that in terms of giving financially. That is, uh, giving financially to the preaching of the gospel, helping to support him. He calls those who help support his ministry his partners in it on occasion. Uh, but he actually uses koinonia to express the joint participation more directly. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 23 Paul says there, I do it all, and he's talking about his preaching ministry here, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul gave himself to the advancement of the gospel so that the Gentiles might share, koinonia, they might have a participation in the blessings that come through the gospel. 
The sufferings of Christ create the Christian fellowship. Remember, we come into that relationship because of what God has done for us in Christ. And so, thirdly, we are often talked about as sharing the sufferings of Christ. That's spoken of as a koinonia. There's a close connection in the New Testament between the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of Christians. That is, as his people, we're called to suffer the way that he did, and that's sharing in his sufferings. Uh, Think about Jesus on the Damascus Road. You remember this? When he appears to Saul, what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, of course, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus directly. He was persecuting the church. But the point is, they shared in those sufferings. Or or Jesus, because he was in fellowship with his people, Jesus shared in the sufferings of the church. Paul desires, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share, koinonia, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And because Christians are called to share in the sufferings of Christ, that means sometimes Christians suffer together. So Paul talks about the church in Philippi, a chapter after that, Philippians 4, verse 14. He talks about them as sharing in his imprisonment there, in a sense, because they contributed to his ministry. The Corinthians experienced the sufferings of Paul more directly and shared in them. He indicates that, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. And the upshot of all this is that Christian suffering isn't just what everybody experiences. I mean, everyone in this world, all human beings suffer as just a matter of the human condition, living in a fallen world. But Christians suffer and share in Christ's sufferings when they suffer specifically as Christians. It's what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter. Don't let anyone suffer as an evildoer. You need to suffer as a Christian on account of wearing that name, Christian. The Lord's Supper, fourthly, is appropriately called communion or fellowship. That is koinonia. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses 16 through 22 here, when Paul's discussing the Lord's Supper in this chapter, uh, koine, or cognates, with this coin root, uh, occur here some four times in just verses 16 through 22. And Paul says here that fellowship means we participate in the body and in the blood of Christ. Fellowship with Christ means that we participate together in his body and his blood. And his point here isn't that we eat the Lord's Supper because we're a community. It's the other way around. His point here is that we are a community. We're in fellowship with each other and with Christ because we've participated in his body and in his blood. In fact, if you read through here, uh, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That's Christ's body on the cross there in verse number 16. But you look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The one body there is the church. Christ's suffering on the cross creates this fellowship 
that we have, a fellowship with others. This community only exists because of what Christ done. And Paul's point here is that that community, that excludes some other communities. You know, his point here is that how can you eat at the Lord's table and eat at the table of demons? So because we're in this fellowship, that means that some other associations, some other fellowships that we might have previously participated in, they're out. We can't be part of those anymore. All of this, and there's actually other expressions we could talk about, but all of this can be summed up in terms of sharing life, living a common life together. And I think of the summary statement at the end of Acts chapter 2, the Jerusalem church here, right after the events of Pentecost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see how they shared with each other, how they had fellowship, how they lived this common life. You look through these verses here. They shared their possessions, verses 44 and 45. They shared their presence with each other. Verse 46, they're day by day they were meeting together, not only in the temple, but they were going to each other's houses. They shared their plates, their food. Verse 46, breaking bread in their homes. They shared their praise of God together. And this is all the more remarkable when you consider a lot of these Christians here in the Jerusalem church, these were, these were pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world. You think about that table of nations that we have there at the beginning of chapter 2, that is, people from all over the Roman Empire and elsewhere. We hear all these fellows speaking in our own tongues. How's that possible? It's not like these were all friends and buddies before. What they had in common with each other is that they were in Christ. And that's what caused them to embark on this new common life together. So what does all of this mean for us, practically speaking? We want to make some practical application here as we close. Fellowship applies to our relationship with God first and foremost. And then because of that relationship with God to the relationship we have with other believers. That is, the basis of our fellowship is the common salvation that we have in Christ and we have fellowship with one another because we all have fellowship with God. In other, other words, the vertical dimension of our relationship determines the horizontal one. We have this relationship because first and foremost, each of us has that relationship. But that cuts both ways. You see, if our relationship with God determines whether or not we have a relationship with each other, our relationship with each other can and does affect our relationship with God. Time and time and time again, the New Testament places emphasis on that, the priority of our personal 
relationships in our relationship with God. John talks about this in 1 John. Most of us will remember these passages. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse number 8, he says, Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. He puts it even more pointedly in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. Jesus places a strong emphasis on this too, doesn't he? More than once in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, if you're laying your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're going to worship, we can put it in our terms, if you're going to church, and you remember that there's something wrong between you and your brother, you go leave that gift at the altar, make things right with your brother first. Or in Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, what does he instruct his disciples to pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he explains that afterwards, the commentary after the prayer, if you do not forgive men your trespass, their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. So in other words, our relationship with others, how we implement this fellowship, affects our relationship with God. Secondly, and I already touched on this, our fellowship with God excludes some other relationships. Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership, ah, there's one of those words, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Having that relationship with God, that fellowship with him, sharing in his holiness requires that we live holy lives. We separate ourselves from certain associations. Chapter 7, verse 1, he makes this same point. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Third, finally, practical application and this one is so important we could spend a long time talking about this but but we won't if you don't take anything else away take this away we have to remember this fellowship is given to baptized believers that is if you respond to the gospel the way that John talks about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. If you respond to that proclamation, if you place your faith in Jesus, and if you are baptized, added to the God's people, have your sins washed away, you have fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ. Our job as Christians isn't to serve as, as gatekeepers. It's not to create fellowship. It's not to offer fellowship to who we want to and then to withhold it from those we don't want to fellowship. Our job is to implement fellowship because it's already been created when we come into that relationship with God. You see, some have this idea 
and I don't know if you're aware that these sorts of people exist out there, and if you are, you're fortunate. But some people have this idea that fellowship consists only in participating in things together, in this joint sharing in activities. Now, what we've seen is that's an expression of fellowship, right? That's not the foundation of fellowship. But so, for instance, you'll see these guys, I know of of more than one that I can think of right now who've compiled whole databases on this sort of thing. And uh, we'll, we'll preach about it, write articles about it, rant about it occasionally. That, well, maybe I, we'll, we'll use me as an example, a uh, hypothetical example. But let's say I went and I'm going to preach in Lufkin next Sunday night. And that church here, let's say they hosted some fellow there in a gospel meeting two years ago. Well, we'll see now we're in fellowship with each other. And he spoke on this lectureship with this other fellow who spoke on a lectureship with another fellow, so on and so forth. We have these six degrees of separation. And this guy over here is a false teacher. And so now all of us are marked as being in fellowship with false teachers. If you're not aware that sort of thinking exists, you're lucky. It's out there, and there's teaching on stuff like that. And it you know, reminds me of the Sadducees, whose wife shall she be in the resurrection? Uh, that sort of thing. That's not what fellowship is about when we look at the New Testament teaching. Fellowship is given by God. It's not a human choice. It's not something that we create by participating in something together. It's something that's created by God when we come into that relationship with him in Christ. It's our common fellowship with God that produces our fellowship with each other. Why is there a church to begin with? It's not because... We all like each other. (laughs) It's not because we all had common interests and decided to get together. It's not because we all agree on everything. It's because we all found ourselves in the same place at the foot of the cross. That's what brings us into relationship with each other. In a human family, did you choose your family? (laughs) No. Sometimes when you're growing up, you might wish you could choose a different one. You don't get a choice in your family. You're just born into it whether you want to be or not. You have to learn the love that comes with those family ties, even if it may be difficult. We're in the family of God, whether we like everyone that's in that family or not. We come into it through that new birth in the same way that we're born into a human family. And we might not always agree on everything, but we have to learn how to live out that love. That's what God calls us to do, the same way that we have to do in a human family, no matter how difficult that may be. Now, that has a lot of implications that we could take off in a multitude of different directions in terms of how we deal with people who disagree with us, in terms of perhaps when we do need to withdraw fellowship, but we're talking about two or three different lessons here. And I simply want to end our lesson tonight by asking us to ask ourselves, how are we doing with this? How are we doing with living out this fellowship that we have with each other and making it more than just a meal that we eat a few times a year together? 
How are we doing with these expressions of it in terms of uh, living life together in all of those ways that we talked about? How are we doing in terms of loving one another, treating each other right? Remember, that determines our relationship with God. If you're here tonight and you've run afoul of some of these things we've discussed this evening, then you're in danger of fracturing that fellowship you have with God. You need to make changes tonight. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?